1: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617 249 3167, 617 249 3167, or send a voice memo to Radiotips at 177 Milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617 249 3167, or email us a voice memo at Radiotips at 177 Milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mo Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
3: One of the most wonderful experiences I had as I was traveling through Iran is I would be on buses or on trains and the person next to me or the person in front of me would maybe get out a big bag of, of oranges and just start peeling off the segments and then just offering it around to everybody. And it was almost this recognition that, yeah, we, we might not know each other, but we're traveling on the same road, um, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> that
2: was Yasmin Khan. She's author of The Saffron Tales. Persian food always tells a story, from sweet to bitter, from sour oranges to dried dates, from cooling yogurt to caramelized onions. It's indeed the joy of hospitality all right there on the plate. Now, before I interview Yasmin, let's check in with Reina Javeri about this week's Milk Street recipe. Hi, Raina. How are you? Hi, Chris. This week, it's tapas week here at Milk Street. And I have to say something about tapas, which is that that's why you go to a restaurant, <laughs> because they usually take a lot of time to repair, and you want lots of different flavors. But we did come across a particular recipe that starts with a pork tenderloin and some spice, and it was actually really easy to make.
4: This recipe is called Pinchos morunos in Spanish, and it actually originated in the Basque region of Spain, and you'll love this. The loose translation of its name is Moorish Bites Impaled on Thorns or Small Pointed Sticks.
2: You get that out of two words? That's, that's pretty good. Okay. It's a rich language. It's a rich language, I guess so.
4: But this is a, it's an easy dish, and it's a dish of seared pork tenderloin that's rubbed with a blend of spices, garlic, herbs, and olive oil. But we streamlined it, of course, for our version because it was fussing with skewers. We didn't want to do that. And so for our spice blend, we use cumin, coriander, and black pepper and a little bit of smoked paprika. And then we take the spice blend and massage it into the pork tenderloin, which we cut into about one and a half inch pieces and then let it sit for about a half hour.
2: Okay, so how do you cook it?
4: So usually this gets grilled traditionally, but we are taking that fussy bit out, and we're cooking this in a large skillet over high heat with just a tablespoon of olive oil. And we want to make sure we add the meat in a single layer and cook without moving so that it gets deeply brown on one side, about three minutes, and then another couple minutes on the other side. And this is a part you're going to like too. We're going to finish this pork with a drizzle of honey, which works really well with the other spices that are in this.
2: So this isn't complicated. This is about 10 minutes of actual work, which is about what I'd want to spend on a Tuesday night.
4: That's right, Chris. You can actually make this into a weeknight meal by serving it over rice or in lettuce cups or over a pile of steamed or roasted vegetables. Reina, thank you. You're welcome. You can get our recipe for pork tapas on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com.
2: Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking
5: 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm so happy to be here. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: This is April from Seattle, Washington. How are you? Great. How are you?
2: You sound great. I like that enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> so how can, or maybe we can, how can we help you?
6: Well, I am going to a wedding, and it is a potluck wedding. And so I was not sure, and I don't know if I can bring like a crock pot, if I can plug anything in. So I was thinking of something that's delicious and, you know, a little on the more, you know, exciting side, but also that can be brought to a wedding and that can also travel. We have to travel about 45 minutes to an hour to get there. So I was wondering if you guys had any
2: ideas. I do. Um, I would say meat pie. Pizza Rustica, for example, which is filled with beets and cheese and things with a nice oh. sour cream pastry crust, uh, served room temperature, oh, sliced. Empanadas would be nice. You could also do oh, yeah. a savory pie, like the English do. So I, I think any kind of meat and vegetables with a crust or pastry around it.
5: Like a crostata, one well, of a those A
2: A free-form one would work. Which
5: is more of a pie dough, less of right. a pizza dough, yeah.
2: All of those oh. are served at room temperature. and you, know, you don't have to go down to the coal mine with your meat pie, but yeah. it would work at a wedding.
5: Exactly. And what time of year is the wedding? This month. Okay. So there is a yep. wonderful recipe from a friend of mine, Jeannie Anderson. You make fresh breadcrumbs. I don't know why. Now I might do panko, but I like this recipe. So it's three-to-one fresh breadcrumbs, and you make them by pulsing them in food processor. And the one part mm. is grated Parmigiano-Reggiano. So you make the breadcrumb mm. mix. You can throw some herbs in if you want, like chopped fresh right. oregano, some chopped parsley. Meanwhile, you take a couple sticks of butter, you add minced garlic, and you melt it. You take oh cut-up chicken, skin-on. This seems very counterintuitive. You dip it in the cooled garlic butter, cooled only so you don't burn your hands, and then you roll it in the breadcrumb mixture, and then you put it on a sheet pan lined with parchment, and you bake it at 350 You know, for 30 minutes until the chicken's cooked. And then you can serve it at room temperature. It's fantastic at room temperature. It's fattening as oh. can be. Okay. And you would yep. say, why shouldn't I remove the skin? For some reason, you shouldn't. And it's the moistest, most moist chicken I've ever eaten. So three to one mm. breadcrumbs to Parmesan cheese. Add some herbs. Yeah. You know, a lot of uh, melted butter. I use the unsalted because the Parmesan cheese is salty. Lots and lots of garlic. Hopefully, eh, nobody else is kissing oh, yeah. anybody else except the bride. So. <laughs> wait, What
2: wait. Weddings? There's a lot of kissing going on at oh, weddings. Chris, the weddings I I I've been know, to. I don't know. Come Chris, on. You behave yourself. <laughs> I didn't mean me. Well, of I'm course. Yes. One. So so your your choice is butter garlic chicken or pizza rustica.
5: Yeah. yeah, yeah. That
6: not bad. I love both. Amazing there, options. Thank there's you a book. So
2: much. Um, I don't know if you can still get it called Cooking Great Meals Every Day. And it has a yeah. pizza rustica recipe that I've made twenty-five yeah. times, and it's perfect for this. Yeah. It's easy to do. Yeah. yeah.
6: Yeah. Oh, excellent. Thank you guys so much. Well, have a fun wedding. Yeah, have a great time. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring anytime. That number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE. One more time, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
6: This is Dawn from Chicago.
2: So how can we help you?
6: I'm not a big fan of mayonnaise.
2: Oh,
5: you've got company. I don't like it either. I'm with you.
6: I mean, sometimes it's necessary, like for tuna salad, just as a binder. But I was wondering if you could offer a suggestion to mayonnaise
2: Greek yogurt with some oil. How about that?
5: Yeah. I mean, oh. Yeah. Or sour cream with right. some oil.
2: Well, I mean, the other way to think about it is if you look around the world, Nobody else is using mayonnaise except the Americans. So oh, and I mean, the French. well, okay, but the fact that of the matter mioli, is, though. there's a thousand recipes for dips that don't use mayonnaise. I mean, I was thinking Just hummus, a vo- yeah, or eggplant. Oh, used oh dip. eggplant, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So like
5: Baba Ganoush, yeah. or beets.
2: Like, you know, roasted beets. You make a tzatziki or something out right. of that. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to do dips without mayonnaise. Just use those recipes. But
5: if you're looking for the creaminess of mayonnaise, I think, yeah, yogurt or sour cream or creme fraîche. But if you want the flavor of mayonnaise, where it comes from is the oil, and it's usually well, in a good mayonnaise, it's olive oil. But in like okay. a store bought it's a vegetable oil. So and the oil gives mouthfeel as well.
6: I have seen on the shelves like mayonnaise that uses like olive oil or actually I just saw one that used avocado oil and i haven't tried it cuz i just got it the other day. Well, then, look, can so. i just say
2: this whole oil things out of control?
6: Okay, i'm sorry. I am there's like 50 <laughs> kinds
2: of oils now. I
5: know. But we had now we can finally have oil again. When I it's grew supposedly up, good for us. I'm very excited about it. Was
2: vegetable oil? I know. And there was olive oil. Those are your two choices. Now it's canola, or corn oil. rice, corn oil. I'm sorry. There's three choices. Corn oil,
5: yes. Yeah. Here you go. No, but there's cool oils like toasted sesame, pumpkin toasted oil, pumpkin seed, I know, I know. and pistachio, hazelnut oil. Oh my god! Yes. No, oil can add so much flavor. But at any rate, I think you you just head down the international route when it comes to dips. And if you need that creamy element, you go for the dairy stuff.
6: Okay. Thank you very much for your input. You're
5: welcome. Well, thank you, Don.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, we take a tour of Persian food with Yasmin Khan. She's the author of The Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to talk to Yasmin Khan. She's the author of The Saffron Tales. She was born in London to Iranian and Pakistani parents, and she's been an active campaigner for human rights issues across the Middle East. For most of us, Iran is still a mystery, so I started by asking Yasmin to provide a tour of Tehran, including the people, the streets, and also the markets. So, um... Uh, you know, being the typical American, my idea of walking down the streets of Tehran is probably all wrong. And reading your book and some interviews with you, it it turned out it was very wrong. So you spent a lot of time there. Could you just take us down the street and and give us a a street level view of what we'd see and what we'd hear?
3: I think Tehran just bustles with life it's a really vibrant cosmopolitan city and it's got all the you know exciting amenities that you'd find in such a place so great restaurants incredible art galleries one of the things I love doing most when I'm there is going to visit one of the old food markets in Tajrish, which is an incredibly old uh, place, centuries old, in fact. And there you can kind of get lost winding through the the bustling market stalls, selling kind of spices from saffron to dried limes to fresh produce um, all the incredible I don't know pumpkins and and peppers and aubergines and tomatoes and, and then also around you know little little souk corners where you can collect some of the incredible kind of artifacts you know Iran's got such a rich artistic history as well that all of those things are depicted when you're walking around the street but it's very modern. I think that's what I always say to people. I get the tube, jump into a great, you know, new sushi restaurant, and then maybe go and see some di- friends for some drinks. So it's very different, I think, to how it, it's generally perceived.
2: The book is called Saffron Tales for Reason, I would assume. And so let's talk about saffron. You, you write, and I didn't. I think most Americans know very little about saffron, other than its color, probably. It's used for uh, medical reasons as well, depression, asthma, reproductive health, blood purification, aphrodisiac, etc. So talk to me about saffron from the Iranian culture.
3: I think saffron probably, for me, is the most evocative of all Iranian spices. It um, has got a very special kind of place in the Iranian home. I think it's it, it, because of its availability you know it's only you can only pick the saffron crocuses they only open up for around 11 to 14 days every year and you harvest them by kind of picking three stamens from each crocus and drying them and that becomes the saffron that we then we then use so, it, you know, it, its availability, it's a very scarce spice and that has really given it a really special status. And Iran produces, I think, you know, estimations vary, but they say roughly around 90% of the world's saffron. And I was, I was lucky enough to visit a saffron farm when I was in Iran. It was incredible just to see the reverence with which the farmers were treating the crocuses. And I, I had a really wonderful experience with the woman whose farm I was visiting, Mary, and she was telling me all these tales of the different ways that they use saffron. And uh, I'd recently separated from my partner at the time, and she insisted that she knew the perfect broken heart saffron uh, concoction. (laughs) And she made me a beautiful small glass of warm milk that she'd infused with saffron and a little bit of honey. And yeah, it it certainly warmed my heart.
2: So give me two or three examples of how I might use it cooking, things that would make sense here in America.
3: I think uh, one of the things that makes Iranian food very accessible is the fact that a lot of the the recipes, they might use a few ingredients we're unfamiliar with, but they use them in quite uh, a familiar context. So saffron, hands down, I think the best way to use it is to make saffron rice, which is incredibly simple. It's just about kind of grinding down some saffron stems Infusing them with hot water so you get this real potent uh, red elixir. And then sprinkling that over your normal white steamed basmati rice. You know, with a bit of butter, that is... Probably one of my favorite dishes. So that's a really great way. The other way I like to use saffron is is with potatoes, which, you know, saffron and and roast potatoes are, are probably another one of those classic combinations that just work really well. Again, it's just about grinding the saffron down, putting it in water. So we always do this in Iran so that that's how we prepare it. And, you know, putting your roast potatoes in the oven with some salt and olive oil. And again, just putting those saffron drops over it.
2: Is there such a thing as fake saffron or lower quality? I mean, if I go to the supermarket and buy it, it's in a little glass vial or something. How do I know I'm getting the real thing and how do I know I'm getting quality or is it all the same?
3: Do you know what? You've touched on a subject very close to my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You see so much fake saffron advertised. I mean, it's really common in like a farmer's markets even. Quite often, safflower is labelled as saffron. So a lot of people when they go to maybe like holidays to to various bits of the world think that they're coming about with with saffron but it's actually safflower. Um, My tips for buying good saffron whether you're in a supermarket or at a market stall is that the strands should be the deepest red possible. So it's not to say that saffron that's kind of an orange color is inferior but it just won't have as an intense a taste and i don't think you know given that it is such an expensive spice you really want to be getting your bang for your buck so to speak so go for really thin stamens that are a deep deep crimson
2: you know that just reinforces my suspicious nature thank you <laughs> <laughs> i always i always wondered about that uh let's do some some foods some meals so breakfast uh Breakfast is quite different in Iran. So, and some of these things sound great: scrambled eggs with feta and dill. I, I want to do tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but what are some of the other things you would have for breakfast?
3: Yeah, well, breakfast in Iran is is a really celebrated event. So, you some some families that I visited would even set some of the table for breakfast before they went to bed because there were so many different aspects of the table that they wanted to put together. And I love that the fact that. I mean, again, you know how we lead our lives in the West. It's, it's, it's so rushed and, and breakfast isn't something that we normally would would spend a lot of time on. But there in Iran, you know, they will get up super early and and really lay a beautiful table with dried fruits, um, nuts, um, uh, different kinds of breads. One of the things that I think is, is most um, exciting for me about the Persian breakfast table is all their incredible jams. They do... Vegetable jams, actually, things like carrot and cardamom and rose water, which I really oh. recommend. This is my one tip I always tell people in the book. Yeah. If you want a, an easy, accessible Persian recipe, go for that because it's, you can have it ready in 30 minutes. And it, it it it's very, very unique. So this kind of jam and toast and bread and butter combination is very popular. Um, and as with all Iranian food, there is a real use of dried fruit and nuts in main courses that's one of the defining features of Iranian food and one of the loveliest recipes I, I, I learned when I was traveling through Iran was this date and cinnamon omelette which is just kind of dates browned off in a little butter so they go all soft and, and caramelized and um, sprinkled with cinnamon and then with you know with eggs beaten over them and it's just so simple ready and you know Five to 10 minutes and a great mm. way to start your day.
2: Y- yogurt is used, it's flavored, it's used as a sauce very often. Uh, here in America, it's eaten out of a cup with some jam in it. Or something. <laughs> so so h- how do you think of yogurt and, and how do you use yogurt? It's such a different ingredient you think about it very differently than we do.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, Iran's a very hot country. So one of the reasons I think yogurt has become so prevalent in its cuisine is because of its intrinsic cooling properties. Many of the countries in the Middle East use um, yogurt, both not only in kind of savoury cooking, but also as a kind of drink. So mixing it with water and mint, which, you know, when it's 40 degrees on a hot day in Tehran, it's just actually the, the perfect thing that you need. Um, but in Iran, we always serve a bit of yogurt with, with the main meal. And, and and not only do we serve yoghurt plain, but also sometimes we mix herbs in it. Maybe it could be mint or some dill. Um, we also use vegetables often, kind of we call them baranis. So mixed yoghurt and vegetables kind of in between a salad and a dip. And you can make these with roasted beetroots or perhaps kind of spinach. And I, I would go so far as to say that, you know, an Iranian table isn't complete without uh, yoghurt in some form as an accompaniment.
2: Uh, Caramelized onions, North Africa, the Middle East, it's just a staple and it's uh, it's used in lots of different recipes, Uh, you know, a bread filling part of lots of other recipes. Could you just talk to me about that? Uh, How do you do it and how do you use it?
3: Yeah, caramelized onions, I think, is my biggest culinary tip for anybody starting out cooking Persian food. You know, the transformation that happens when you're cooking an onion um, very, very slowly is, is dramatic. It goes from being a, a separate ingredient to almost like a base note of a dish. And the patience that's involved in slowly caramelizing onions isn't something that many of us are kind of used to in our traditional kind of cooking in the West. But um, if you take the time, I can guarantee that your dish will be elevated
2: uh, let's talk about sour. That's not <laughs> something How do you we know feel about, sour? about I well, I'm kind of a sour person, but no, I, I love <laughs> sour and I like bitter and I think they're really important uh, flavor balancers. And and you talk about a sour chicken curry or sour yogurt. It's very much part of Persian cooking, not so much here. D- talk to me about sour. W- w- sell me on sour.
3: Yeah, it isn't a, a, a taste that we, we tend to use in, in the UK or uh, I know in the States, but actually in Iranian food, sweet and sour, I would say, is the dominant flavor. It's, it's a bit like the Italians have the you know, agrodolce. It's, it's that very mm-hmm. subtle use of a slight sharpness tempered with some sweetness. And in Iran, what we use, we use a lot of citrus to give that. We use limes and um, sour oranges, Seville oranges, but also pomegranate molasses, uh, grape molasses, um, different kinds of fruit, basically. Um, and, and even one of the most common things in, in a Persian dish is to kind of mix fruits in with main courses. And depending on, on the dish, you can decide whether that's going to veer more towards the sweet, part
2: of the spectrum or the sour um pomegranates obviously central not so much here uh pomegranate seeds pomegranate molasses which i made fun of for 30 years and now i can't live without <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a convert i uh, just talked to me what pomegranates obviously are there are a lot of them in the winter what do you do with them why are they so important
3: yeah if there was a national ingredient of Iran I'm very clear that it would be the pomegranate and I think one of the reasons that they've acquired such a special status in Iran is for the exact reason that you mentioned I mean we have this fruit that appears in the midst of winter when you know very little very little else is growing and not only is it delicious but it um, is also ruby red you know it kind of looks it kind of glistens with its little jewels and in Iran um ancient folklore has given the, the pomegranate, you know, elevated status. According to Iranian mythology, the hero warrior Asfandiyah um, ate pomegranates and then became invincible. And all the ancient Zoroastrian temples in Iran were lined with pomegranate trees, which it was claimed would give, you know, the, whoever ate them eternal life. So very, very much celebrated. And in Iran, our second biggest festival of the year is the winter solstice, and uh, on that night, it's very common for people to stay awake all night and you know recite poetry and all the all the very artistic things that Iranians tend to do uh, on their festivals, and also eat red fruit and and pomegranates are, are the star of the show there. What I love about pomegranates is that they're so versatile and pomegranate molasses can be used in so many different ways. What makes pomegranate molasses such a wonderful ingredient to cook with is that you can use it on everything, you know, I've as well as using it in Persian stews. Um, I use it in salad dressings. You know, if I'm making a stir fry, I often put it in with, you know, the soy sauce. It's delicious on ice cream. It's great with yogurts. It, again, anytime you want that slight sweet-sour tang to any dish. I think it can really impart it in a very unique way.
2: You know, if I travel, um, I'm always looking for something I can't find somewhere yeah. else, something unique. So you you know Tehran, obviously, intimately. So what? give me an experience you've had there that would just for you summarize how different it is and how wonderful it is, something personal that, that happens. So
3: in Iran, we have a real culture of sharing food. And one of the most wonderful experiences I had as I was traveling through Iran for this book, because obviously I was traveling, you know, 3,000 kilometers up and down the country, is I would be on on buses or on trains and the person next to me or the person in front of me would maybe get out a a big bag of, of oranges and just start peeling off the segments and then just offering it around to everybody. And there was something so intimate about that experience but it was almost this um recognition that yeah we, we might not know each other but we're two people we're, we're traveling on the same road um, literally and metaphorically and i want to acknowledge that you're here and and share with uh, you what i have and that's a very unique iranian experience that i've not experienced anywhere else And I think it's one of the most powerful things food can do. It's those shared experiences, those intimate moments that we have with each other when we're offering each other food and when we're tasting each other's food.
2: That was Yasmin Khan. She's author of The Saffron Tales. You know, food is hospitality goes back to the beginning of recorded history. In ancient Greece, the Stoics regarded hospitality as a duty demanded by Zeus himself. In India, one often hears the expression, the guest is God. And in Judaism, the ritual of hospitality, of course, goes back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And as most of us probably know, in Christmas Eve in London, the tradition of wassailing demanded that the rich give to the less wealthy carolers who went house to house looking for figgy pudding. In Persia, food and hospitality are still very close friends, proving that human history still has its finer moments. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to speak with our regular contributor, Dr. Aaron Carroll, about why avoiding peanuts in your child's diet may not be a good thing. Welcome back to Milk Street. Always great to be here. So what pile of conventional wisdom are you going
1: to attack this week? I think we're going to talk about peanuts and uh, everyone's fear of how they should be exposed to them as babies and whether they're going to get allergies. So what do you have to say? It's it's one of those fascinating things because you know back in like two thousand the American Academy of Pediatrics put out guidelines trying to prevent allergies and they actually cautioned mothers they should avoid certain foods even while they were pregnant um, even while they were breastfeeding and the baby should not be exposed to certain foods peanuts were one of the things they said not till three years of age hmm. there's never been good evidence to support that kind of thing about a year ago a group put together a very large randomized controlled trial, a really well-designed study where they actually randomized like 600 and some children when they were babies to either avoid peanuts or actually be fed peanut protein starting at about six months of age and then going until I think about five years. And what they found was that the kids who were exposed to peanut protein while they were young developed significantly fewer peanut allergies than the kids hmm. who were actually kept away from it. And even when they looked at the subgroup of kids who were already sensitive to peanuts, in other words, you had a concern already right. that they might be at even higher risk for developing an allergy, those kids were even less likely to develop a peanut yeah. allergy if we exposed them to peanuts when they were very young than if you took a normal kid and you didn't let them see peanuts until they were three years of age. So it turned all that wisdom on its head and you know just recently the NIH and an expert panel released new guidelines actually recommending that we start exposing babies to peanut protein in their mm-hmm. formula or or outside of it at very young ages you know 6 months and perhaps even earlier if we think they're at very high risk for an allergy of course they should talk to their doctor before doing any of that But it really turns a lot of the the conventional wisdom on its head about avoiding things in order not to get allergic to them.
2: Is it actually true statistically that a higher percentage of children in the United States have food allergies than, let's say, a generation or two ago? Do we actually know the answer to that?
1: We think so, but it's probably not as high as... You see in some lay press or some you know more popular things because, of course, some of that could be real diagnoses that we're actually seeing more children with real allergies. Some of that is that there's become so much more awareness in the last decade or right. so that people are starting to, to notice things where they didn't before. And the third is that we're seeing a broadening sometimes of what we will call an allergy. You know, in the past it might have been you have to have anaphylaxis or trouble breathing. But now it could be, well, I feel a little funny. And so a little of it is probably real, and then some of it is also changes in the way we've actually been diagnosing it.
2: The other question I have is I've talked to people who say that our gut bacteria, because we're not ingesting bacteria the way we used to from farms, for example, Means we're more susceptible to allergies. For example, I think one study said the Amish uh, children don't have as many allergies as other kids because their mothers, while pregnant, are walking around barns. Is there any truth to that?
1: There is, and that well, there people think there is. the The fancy word for what you just described is what we would call the hygiene hypothesis. the The idea that as we have made the environment cleaner and more sterile, as our body has less to fight in the outside world, it sometimes turns inward, that we wind up right. attacking ourselves in such a way that, that, you know, that's what allergies are. We're overreacting to stimuli. Now, of course, nobody's going to suggest that we start living in filth or exposing us to, to really harmful bacteria. But there is this idea that if if we're, you know, we're meant to be exposed to things, that's the natural order. And our bodies develop ways to recognize what is regular and what is good and what is not. And while allergies are still likely to occur, it is possible, especially in this case, it seems very likely that if we try too hard to keep things away from people when they're very young and everything is developing, it may cause even more problems later in life than if we let them be exposed.
2: So if you're pregnant, would you recommend that you should include peanuts in your diet or you recommend you go see your doctor first?
1: Everyone... So the answer always has to be you should talk to your doctor first. But I think we're going to see uh I think we'll probably start seeing more of a relaxing of all of this kind of thing. That you know, certainly if somebody was allergic to peanuts, they shouldn't be eating peanuts when they're pregnant. But for people who are not allergic, there there seems to be no reason to avoid it and a growing body of evidence that says, you know, sometimes this exposure Certainly for babies and perhaps even for pregnant moms, we'll have to keep an eye on that research. You know, doing regular natural things, exposing yourself to foods is not a terrible thing. and may actually be a beneficial one.
2: Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. Uh, I've learned a lot, and uh, I can have peanuts with my old-fashioned tonight. Thank you. Anytime. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, a regular guest on our show, also writer for the Upshot column in the New York Times. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, also author of Home Cooking 101. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring. That number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE, one 855 bowtie You can also send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. By the way, our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, as well as at our own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Sarah, how are you? you ready to take some calls?
5: Chris, I sure am. I'm prepared.
2: I knew the answer to that question.
5: Hello. Welcome to Milk Street. It's Chris and Sarah. Who do we have on the line?
6: Ellen from Syracuse, New York. Oh, hi, Ellen.
5: What's your question?
6: I recently discovered seaweed salad that they serve at the sushi restaurants. I can't really find a recipe to perhaps replicate that at home without having to spend all the money at the restaurants every time I crave it, which is a lot now.
5: Oh, my goodness. I know how that is. Do you have a place where you can buy dried seaweed?
6: Yes, I do. There's like a Whole Foods, but there's also a couple of Asian markets. Oh, as well.
5: wonderful. Go to the source, which means you'll get other good ingredients. So, what you need to do is yep. take that seaweed in a large bowl and cover it with cold water and let it soak for about 10 to 15 minutes. Or until the seaweed Mm. is soft, you know, you've rehydrated it. And then you need to squeeze it out. And you can either slice it up. Uh, The stuff you get in the Japanese restaurants is finely chiffonade, right? It's like shredded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then you can... Stack them like a deck of cards, roll them up like a cigar, and then cross country. Across country. Cross, <laughs> listen to me. Oh, my God. I think I need a vacation. <laughs> On the road again. <laughs> Here we are. And then slice yeah. across them into thin strips. And then toss them with the usual suspects. I mean, this probably is what you're getting is rice vinegar, sesame oil, a little bit of sugar and salt, and some toasted sesame seeds. And maybe a little bit of soy sauce as well, although actually it's quite salty, so you probably won't need it. What do you think? Does that sound like the usual suspect uh,
6: Yeah, it does. I have been looking for the ingredients, but I guess, I was thrown off because when I looked at the seaweed, the seaweed was so large. And like you said, at the restaurant, it is shredded, it is sliced thinner. And so I didn't know if it was the right product. So it definitely makes sense when you say to like soak it and then cut it because then it'll look sort of like the stuff that they have in the restaurant.
5: So, yeah, soak it, squeeze it because you don't want to water down your dressing. Mm -hmm. And then do that thing where you shred it and then toss it with those ingredients rice, vinegar, sesame oil, sugar. Maybe a little bit of salt or soy if you think it needs any uh, salt. And mm-hmm. then some toasted sesame and, seeds. And Sarah got to say the word chiffonade.
6: Yeah. It I just did.
5: brings
2: joy <laughs> to her soul.
6: This is great, though. Thank you so much. I've been scouring the internet, and what you've given me is really great because I can kind of play around with the sauce to get it to where I need it Of course.
5: It to One caveat about the sesame oil it's uh, very perishable, yeah. the toasted stuff. So make sure you keep it in the fridge. And if it gets cloudy, which it will, okay. just pull it out, let it come to room temp, you know, or just melt enough so you can get what you need. And don't overdo it because it can overwhelm. It's very strong. Yeah. It's toasted yeah. sesame, right? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, the toasted. dark stuff.
6: Yeah.
2: Okay. Well,
5: thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right, Ellen. Take care. All right. Care. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring anytime. That number is one eight five five four bowtie. One more time, one. 1- 855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. It's Chris and Sarah. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Laurie. I'm in Maryland.
2: Hi, Laurie from Maryland. How can we help you?
6: Well, I like to put fiber in my waffles or my banana bread or something. And I'm walking through the grocery aisles and I see wheat germ in the cereal aisle and wheat bran in the baking aisle and I don't know the difference.
2: Well, the bran is the outer husk, which has, if you want, you know, uh, roughage. Uh, the germ is, is the inside, which is much more perishable. Yeah, actually it, you should keep it in the fridge because yeah, it can go rancid. It'll go rancid quickly. And uh, usually I buy toasted wheat germ, which I wow. use. In, actually, I have a whole wheat soda bread recipe, which I love with toasted wheat germ. So if you want fiber, go for the bran. The wheat germ is probably going to give you the flavor.
5: They're both very good for you, though. So, you know, from that other point of view, not a bad idea to use both of them. You're not going to pull nutritionist on me. Oh, no, no, I won't do that. (laughs) I will not do that. No, no, no. no. I did want to point out that there's also all those dried fruits that are wonderful, too, just to throw that out. For what? Fiber. (laughs) It's just nice to get all that good stuff in there. And they're yummy. All right. Sarah
2: Malta representing the Dried Fruit Institute of in I America. know, really, really. Yeah, so I, I would get toasted wheat germ, but keep it in the fridge. Because yes, it will go bad very quickly. And toasted yeah.
5: is cool. I bet you that's really tasty.
2: It is very tasty. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, any whole wheat flour you should keep in the fridge. I know yeah. that, but I didn't so. know you
5: could get toasted wheat germ. That's great.
2: Did that answer your question, sort of? Yes,
6: thank you guys okay. so much. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, okay,
2: our, our pleasure. Thanks for calling.
6: Okay, bye.
2: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk with Lior lev Sarkaz, an Israel-born chef and spice master, also author of two books, The Art of Blending and the Spice Companion. If you want a skillet steak to taste just like barbecue, Lior is just the guy to ask. So I've read, uh, you talk about how many different spices or ingredients you use for a blend. I think nine, nine ingredients is on the low end, 23 on the high end. If you have 15 or 20 ingredients in a blend, does it, I guess like perfume, right? I mean, does it get to the point of no return, that it's so complex that it's hard to pick out the advantage of those last five ingredients? Or do you think a 23-ingredient blend, you know, makes makes a lot of sense to you?
7: I mean, it's a good question. I mean, my goal is not to create over-the-top sophisticated and complex blend. The idea is to just make a great blend and... I could do it with nine, which is the case, or 10 or 12. I usually have two or three really main components, and the other ones play a secondary role where they tone down something, they enhance another element. And I often take even these recipes that I've been doing for over 10 years now and just for fun remove two or three components out of them to see if it still really matters. It does. Would somebody notice it? Um, I'm not sure. I think it also has to do with the physics of of the the blend, how they kind of attach to each other and their texture, which is important also.
2: Let's start with salt and pepper. Every recipe says salt and pepper. Yet salt is a very sophisticated ingredient that enhances flavors. It reduces bitterness. There are lots of different kinds of salt. So from your perspective— you know, most home cooks don't think about salt in terms of different styles and and its sort of magical properties. How do you think about salt? How do you think about different types of salt? Or how do you salt?
7: I uh, often joke that I think there should be a ban to that famous phrase in recipes that says season with salt and pepper. I would like for it to be replaced with the word season with sodium and heat. (laughs) Uh, I think salt and sodium are important. Uh, but you could deliver sodium, A, by various different salts, of course, but fish sauce or or capers or anchovies or different applications just because we don't all cook the same. One would prefer maybe gray salt to fine crystal salt or, or fleur de sel versus Molden. I think it's really about um, the home cook identifying what's their style of cooking, you have to try and educate yourself by uh, getting a little, uh, a few samples of various salts, tasting them.
2: Well, what, what are some of the peppers people should start to know about now, beyond you know, Tellicherry, for example?
7: Sure. So I think um, it's important to you know explore um, peppercorns to begin with. To say you know, just saying black pepper corn doesn't mean much. Is it um, Indian, Indonesian, Cambodian? All very different in size and flavor. Uh, and as I said earlier, in terms of pepper, maybe sometimes you want to give your pepper mill a break and um, get some uh, things like uh, an Aleppo, which is actually uh, a, a bell pepper of some sort of, or a chili to some extent, and you gain uh, texture because of the, the flakes, you gain notes of, of orange and citrus and some sweetness and acidity, uh, all of that in one chili flake type Aleppo or an Urfa from the south of Turkey uh, with great smoky notes and all of the Mexican varieties. So I think that having a, a couple of, of heat component handy in a kitchen is, is a great thing.
2: Let's go through a few items that are things that are on the cusp of being used more and more in the American kitchen and just quickly describe them and why you might want to know about them. Cardamom, green and white cardamom, that's something mm-hmm. that's being used more and more.
7: So green cardamom, fairly familiar. Um, however, most people always see it in a ground format. The, the pod itself is fantastic, both the shell and the seeds inside. I use both. I think that um, for many years it was reserved mainly for the baked goods or sweets. It is a fantastic ingredient for savory dishes that should be explored. If you want to break out the seeds and sprinkle them into a salad, they add a great sweetness and acidity. Uh, Do not discard the the shell. You can grind it or you can uh, infuse it into a a broth or a stock or a chicken soup. They'll really add a a fantastic uh, level of complexity.
2: Uh, Chipotle peppers, everyone knows about them, buys them in the small cans. What do you think about them and how would you use them?
7: I think, um, again, a couple of types of chipotles, you know, the, the brown or the red. I think it's an amazing ingredient. Not only it delivers heat but it has a smoky factor since those are uh, smoke-dried uh, jalapenos, basically. And I found some sweet notes to it even and some acidic notes to it. Um, and, and it's a great complex heat element in a dish, uh, not to mention the uh, powder form that acts also a little bit like a binding agent. If you were to finish a sauce or a stew mm. or something, uh will add definitely to it.
2: I, I was reading a cookbook recently, and... I think about a third of the recipes called for fenugreek, (laughs) which I have never used. So so tell me, why should I care about fenugreek?
7: I think you should care about fenugreek the same way you should care about spices generally. Fenugreek should be used because it adds a great kind of slightly fermented oniony notes to dishes, whether you use the whole seeds or the ground seeds. And an element that has yet to even be explored uh, is fenugreek leaves that are phenomenal and offer this kind of like a bitter green flavor to them. I hope that with time they will be embraced in more and more kitchens.
2: Sichuan pepper, why should we know about that?
7: (laughs) I think that Sichuan and its cousin, the Sancho from Japan, people should be aware of them because it's another way of introducing heat to a dish, which we agreed is important. They also offer a sort of a numbness, uh, in a very good way, where it blocks certain elements in our on some of our taste bud, if you will, and highlights some other ones. The classic example would be eating an avocado as is and uh doing that same test after eating a Szechuan or a Sancho pepper, and all of a sudden it's ten times more sweet um and fr- mm. and fruity. Because we block, it's part of the reason that I stopped using sugar in my uh, coffee and tea is thanks to Sancho and Sichuan. because I realized that I, I'm basically, I could recreate a sweet sensation by using different seasoning types, Sichuan, Sancho, ginger, and so on. I'm not saying that you should omit completely sugar from your cookies, but I think if you use things like Sichuan, you will be able to reduce the amount of sugar needed without affecting, of course, the texture.
2: Okay, let's move on to how you think about pairing spices with foods. Let's start with like a chicken tagine, okay, Uh, where they would use ginger, cumin, turmeric. How would you think about a chicken if you're going to braise a chicken? what, What are the kinds of things that go through your mind in trying to come up with a blend? Or if you're at home, the spices you might pick off the shelf.
7: Sure. So a couple of kind of directions. I mean, uh, I live in an apartment in New York, and I sadly do not own a grill. I do come from the Middle East, and I do like to grill. So my kind of solution oftentimes to mimic a grilling sensation would go to elements that have some sort of a, a smoky note to them. So whether I uh, season my uh, chicken with a little bit of chipotle that we mentioned earlier, some Spanish pimenton, the smoked paprika, um and then just pan sear them or or roast them in the oven, that's an example of how I can create a great smoky grilled sensation. Sometimes I would like for my chicken to be more of a kind of a gamey or more of a savory note, and chicken could be fairly mild. I would use elements such as cumin that deliver that kind of a more savory gamey note to a very simple chicken thigh or chicken breast. And then if I pair them with um, some dried fruits for a tagine, I would want to, you know, pair also some floral elements type ginger and cardamom and clove and allspice and that will create this great fragrance and really kind of relate to the tagine. Tea. You,
2: you mentioned sumac, and I, I forgot to mention that. That's, that's all over the place now. Could you just talk about what it tastes like and when you might use sumac?
7: Sure. Sumac, uh, a berry uh grows actually also uh, domestically in the U.S., however, quite uh, most of it is poisonous. It's a little berry that has a reddish, burgundy color. What it mainly offers are great sour and tart and acidic notes, aside from the, the beautiful color. I call it often the Middle Eastern vinegar powder. I think mm. that acidity is one of the other main components, aside from heat and sodium, both for curing preserving but also just um, to enhance flavor type lemon juice and so sumac is that spice that you could sprinkle in a salad or in a dressing and deliver acidity uh, instead of using a citrus Uh, plus the fact that it doesn't go away uh, it will not fade out over time
2: Um, let's talk about quality Uh, years ago i was in morocco across the atlas mountains and bought a bunch of uh, herbs and spices locally uh, and uh, it blew me away. I mean, it was 10 times better than anything else I'd ever had. I mean, it completely changed the cooking. So w- what does a home cook do?
7: I think the first thing to do is really to open the jar of spices that you have at home, including your salt shaker and pepper meal, and just taste and smell the content so that you can record that, and then the next time when you do see that same spice by a different vendor or brand, you have something to refer to. There are no more excuses saying that in middle America we cannot find sumac. It is not true. If you don't have it there, uh, somebody will ship it to you. I also encourage people to just go to their local store and talk to that store owner. And you'd be surprised. Their idea is to sell you something. And if there's enough demand, they will carry it. Okay,
2: everyone says spices are good for six months. Is there any time frame that's useful or not?
7: I invite people that wherever it is that you purchase... The day you bring it into your kitchen, take a pen and somewhere on the label, or if you need to add an additional label, just add one year to that date of purchase. By the time an average person purchases spice at the local store, they're at least eight to nine months old already. And I guess the main thing is just to use them as often as possible.
2: That was Lior lev Sarkaz, He's chef and spice master, also owner of La Boite Biscuits and Spices, and author of The Spice Companion. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to cook and finish pasta in sauce. So if you're serving pasta with a sauce, we'd like to remove the pasta from the boiling water about two minutes before it's done or al dente. We drain it, we add it to the sauce in the skillet, and then we cook it until it is finally properly cooked. Now this way, the pasta will absorb a lot of the sauce, not just be coated by it. We also like to reserve a cup or so of the pasta water, that's the cooking water, and you can add that to the skillet if the sauce becomes a little bit too thick. By the way, you can also finish your pasta with pesto and a bit of added cooking water. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You know, the greatest work of ancient Persian fiction is, of course, the Arabian Nights. Yet the modern reader might be surprised that women are often depicted as much smarter and much more cunning than the men. For example, in Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, the plot is foiled by Ali Baba's loyal slave, Morgiana. She dispatches the murderous thieves using her own initiative. But more to the point, the main character in these tales is, of course, Scheherazade, she recounts 1,001 tales to save the young women of the kingdom from certain death. Each night, the vengeful king marries a new virgin and then has her executed in the morning. But through Scheherazade's masterful storytelling, the king abandons the slaughter after 1,001 nights. You know, history is often full of surprises. Scheherazade is the very model of the modern sage and woman. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can download each week's recipe.
0: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production Assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help, Debbie Paddock. Theme Music by 2Bob Crew. Additional Music by George Brandel Eggloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.